The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. This episode of The Curbsiders is available for CME and mock credit through our partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can go to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders and claim their free CME and mock credit. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hey guys. Hi. Hey. <laughs> I, I hate that so much. <laughs> Me too. Paul, you got to come in hot on these shows, Paul. You got you got to come in high energy. Uh really. The the yeah. Okay. I I'm Good resisting job. a I'm bad convinced. joke there. Yes. yes I'm convinced. You got to come in hot. So this yeah. this is the curbsiders tonight. We're going to be talking about buprenorphine and opioid use disorder. With me tonight, multiple co-hosts. Stuart Kent Brigham. Stuart, it's me. how are you doing? Well, thank you for asking, Matt. <sighs> Moving on to Paul. Paul. <laughs> I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks so much for asking. <laughs> All right. We'll introduce our guest host uh, in a second here. Paul, can you tell people what we do on this show? I often wonder. We are the <laughs> Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Um, I... We'll generally give you a hard time up front about skipping past the first 15 minutes, which are pure gold about um, humanity and life. And they'll ultimately make you a better person. So stick with us, please. Yes. I think this week's first few minutes are kind of an extension of the show. It it was it was definitely related to the topic. So I I would definitely. Especially the pick of the week. Yeah. Yeah. And now with us with us. Not no, not the pick of the week. With us uh, tonight is the great uh, Dr. Justin Lee Burke returning for his. I, he's been working with us for a very oh. long time now. Just had a two-year anniversary coming up here, Justin, oh. I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what do you tell, guys get me? Tell the audience, uh, what are you up to these days? And then why don't you set up the show? Let them know a little bit more specifics of what we talk about tonight. Yeah. So I recently started a new position at the Warren Alport School of Medicine at Brown University. Um, it's the best. I'm getting to do some primary care, some inpatient care, some addiction uh, work. Uh which is a great segue into what we're talking about today at this episode. <laughs> On this episode, we cover the basis of opioid use disorder treatment. It's great. We, we discuss, uh, we address some of the knowledge that can be helped to empower providers to give confidence to start uh, treating, including details on different formulations of buprenorphine, how to initiate treatment, how to address challenges that might might arise on people that are on uh, buprenorphine, and understand how to address things like perioperative pain management for for patients on buprenorphine. Just an overall well-rounded way to become a master in all things buprenorphine. That was phenomenal. I, I think we succeeded. Paul, can you tell them about our guest? Sure. Be happy to, Matt. So Dr. Fingerhood is an associate professor of medicine and public health and the chief of division of chemical dependence at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from the Johns Hopkins University and his medical degree from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He completed internal medicine training in a chief resident year at Johns Hopkins Bayview. Dr. Fingerhood created the Comprehensive Care Practice in 1994, which is a primary care practice largely devoted to providing care to individuals with substance use disorder. The practice has been innovative in integrating buprenorphine treatment into the primary care setting for over 650 individuals. 
He also has co-created novel buprenorphine treatment programs at the community center at a church and in a mobile van outside the Baltimore Detention Center. He is the co-author of the American Society of Addiction Medicine Handbook of Addiction Medicine and the recipient of the Baltimore City Health Department 2017 Health Equity Leadership Award. So without further ado, and with great pleasure, we present our guest, Dr. Fingerhood. You literally wrote the book on addiction medicine. I was not going to read that joke out loud. It's called, I'm, it's called addiction I, medicine. I know. I wrote to it stop it. I'm making saying It's I'm just like a freight it. train bearing down on me. <laughs> there was this book called addiction medicine. Mike, the first part of the show, we always like to ask our guests, can you give an, the audience a one-liner? Tell them a little bit about yourself and include maybe a hobby or interest outside the world of medicine. Sure. So I'm a 58-year-old internal medicine provider. I'm at that age for another couple of days. Who <laughs> has devoted a career to the underdog. Uh, I really try to champion the care of patients with addiction and HIV. Uh, as you may hear as I speak, I have a Brooklyn accent that still comes out, especially when tired. So it's <laughs> late in the evening now. Now, a husband, father of two. I, I love to swim and run. And uh, uh, my most prized possession, which ties into my main hobby, is I have a basketball signed by the 1970 championship New York Knicks. Okay. Nice. So I guess I'll, I'll take my usual question. How, tell me about a book that you feel like every doctor should read. So this is an unusual book. Uh, most people have seen the movie. It was just remade, but it's the, actually the book Papillon, which I read as a teenager. And there's a sequel also, Banco. I don't know if it, uh, people have seen the movies. The original movie was a classic with uh, Steve McQueen and Dustin, a very young Dustin Hoffman. Um, but the theme of both of them is really the fight for justice when the odds seem insurmountable. Um, that There's wonderful scene in the original with uh, Steve McQueen at a leper colony and overcoming incredible obstacles to finally escaping Devil's Island um, hmm. and then eventually getting justice and clearing his name in the sequel. Spoiler um, alert. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from that spoiler, what's your favorite failure? What'd you learn from it? So, so uh, my favorite failure is actually related to the topic I'm going to talk about. And it's happened more than once. So it just shows that you can make a mistake more than once and realize, you know, that, uh, duh, why didn't I realize that? And, and that's work I've been trying to do where I try to get community health clinics to uh, prescribe buprenorphine. And uh, not having insight into the uh, kind of negative uptake and the indifference, because I didn't realize that they were first stigmatized against patients with opioid use disorder. And why would they want to treat opioid use disorder if they thought these were bad people who did bad mm. things, who committed crimes? And I don't want these people in my office. So why are you telling me to provide treatment to them? That's an ongoing struggle, too, a lot of times. Yes. But is, and I, we may get to this, but is that, I mean, it's, it's certainly worth talking about, but is it really a mistake? Like, I just wonder if the exposure doesn't help sort of change the conversation a little bit. You know what I mean? I feel like the more you treat, sort of the more sensitive you become about using stigmatizing language and perception and sort of how to how to have the conversations. Um, I don't know. It's I, I hate to I hate to hear it described as a failure as maybe an opportunity for growth, but that's uncharacteristically optimistic for me. I think the lesson I learned perhaps is that to first go in and assess where people are and understand what their views are. And perhaps, uh, and uh, later on, I instead of me saying something, I brought someone in recovery with me who perhaps th there's val validity of the reason why, you know, I, I don't, this seems like a futile endeavor. If you've never met anybody who succeeded, you, you might think it's a waste. Yeah. So you've dedicated a career to addiction medicine and opiate use disorder. How did you first 
Uh, what was your first exposure to opiate use disorder and how did you kind of choose this field of medicine? So I, my first exposure was actually back in 1974. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And incredibly, this I, I don't know this... It may be a coincidence, but it's definitely something that caused me to reflect that in 1974 in the apartment building I was living in, Flappish area of Brooklyn, um, a methadone clinic actually opened in the same building in which I lived. I lived on the fifth floor, and a lot of the apartments in Brooklyn have kind of doctor's offices entrances. Actually, my, when I was a little kid, my pediatrician was in the same building. But, mm-hmm. but uh, a uh, methadone clinic had opened. So this was 1974. It was, you know, Vietnam War was winding down. It was, it was really the first influx of uh, heroin, although there was in the 60s, too, because remember, methadone was, uh, became a useful treatment in the 19, mid-1960s. But uh, it was the real need for methadone treatment. And uh, what I saw, I didn't understand. And in fact, uh, I didn't have a pet, but I remember uh, neighbors being concerned because there were often uh, almost empty bottles of methadone uh, that were lying on the street that they were afraid that their dogs would uh, you know, get into because not all the bottles necessarily were fully empty. That was my first exposure. And I have to admit, uh, uh, by 1976, two years later, uh, uh, my parents moved. We moved to a different part of Brooklyn. Um, so that was my initial uh, uh, exposure to opioid use disorder. I have to say, I, I was uh, too young to really understand. I certainly didn't have a grasp of addiction. And then uh, 10 years later, interesting. Exactly 10 years later, I was a medical student in the Bronx at uh, Albert Einstein, and this was the, new, the next wave, which was HIV related to injection drug use. And also, that's, at that time, uh, injection drug use in the Bronx was just endemic. And uh, our uh, admission board, both I did 12 weeks of medicine, on the board was uh, assigned, you, know, you put a diagnosis for each patient, and the most common uh, uh, diagnosis, which was put on the board, was SWAF, which stood for uh, shooter with a fever. So it was a really oh, uh, dehumanizing term. And all you would see, you would see uh, a person's name, SWAF, and the name, SWAF, name. And, and we didn't do much. I mean, we did blood cultures. If someone had a murmur, we did uh, an echocardiogram. And I remember saying uh, to my attending, who was a rheumatologist, who was there because he was just there. Uh, <laughs> what are we really doing for the patients? And he was kind of indifferent. And he told me that addiction was not a medical problem, that, that uh, we, we were obligated to admit these people. He said in a kind of negative way, uh, but there was no way as physicians we could do anything about what was wrong with them. Um, so uh, that kind of resonated with me because it's, it, it didn't make sense to me. Um, it certainly caused me to try to gain better understanding, but it also prevented, presented a challenge. And I always think that the most reward is when you uh, try to solve the biggest challenges. Um, so that's really, uh, I, I, I saw it as a mission and a goal. If, you know, how could that be that I'm entering the field of medicine as an eager medical student and I'm being told that I, I can't do anything to help these individuals? I, I, I don't want to get us too far too far down this now, but I, I, I mean, I feel like I have to respond with this thought that over the course of my career, which has been short at this time, I went from being a student to a resident to, to now an attending for the last several years. And over that time, the perception or maybe, maybe just my perception changed where these people are doing bad things and have bad behavior and will 
punish them by not giving them the opioids that they're seeking from us to now where it's kind of shifting where, okay, these patients have an opioid use disorder. We have medicines that can help them. We can, you know, we can try to help them with this so they can get back on track in their lives. And it's just made the practice of taking care of these patients just so much more enjoyable. Uh, it, It caused a lot of distress during the times where the, the thought process was that, you know, that these people were out of control and that their behavior should be punished or it, it just, it didn't feel good as the person who was supposed to be providing care for them. I'm not sure if any, I, if, if my yeah, colleagues that's have. True. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I've, I've said this before. And if any of the listeners out there want to take this research project and run with it, if I could just be in the acknowledgement sections, that'd be wonderful. But I, I really do think, <laughs> um, like I, I think using sort of patient first language and, and treating substance use disorders in a humanistic sort of patient first way, it really, it, it, the relationship stops being adversarial. And instead you actually feel like you're meaningfully treating illness, which is the whole job. And I really do think it decreases burnout. It makes the job more rewarding and it just makes you feel better about coming to work every day. So I would love to see a formal study that actually looks at sort of patient first language and then just sort of appropriate management of, of substance use disorder and relationship to actual provider burnout. And I bet you there's I bet you, I bet you it helps. Yeah. So how, how would you randomize that? Someone's nice. The other person just kind of a. Not, <laughs> not nice. Not nice. <laughs> this is why I'm farming it out. Yeah. Somebody else can figure that out. You've seen the I, I, I'm with you. I, it's a great population to work with too. I think it is something that people miss out on if they don't get that experience in residency or in their training. I, I've also just noticed that when you, when you openly just talk to patients about their substance use and like say that, you know, I want to understand what, what what you're dealing with so that I can then understand. I want to talk to you frankly about how much you're using and what you're using, because I might have ways that I can help you be more comfortable while you're here in the hospital, or we can start you on buprenorphine and, and potentially help you, you know, not have to keep going through this all the time. And patients just are like, some of them are like shocked when you're having frank conversations with them about this. And like, you know, just talking like, you're on their side. It's 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 very refreshing if you if you haven't yet gone through it, uh, and you're used to it going the other way. Then then please, I would I would implore you to try it out. Is this a pick of the week? Your pick of the week is yeah, advocacy. Week. <laughs> it feels good. Yeah. Um, did you, did anyone have picks of the week? Because I think we should probably just move. I don't know. I feel like we should. We've already kind of moved into the topic. Uh, so Stuart has written an entire paragraph in this script. Are you sure you wanted to <laughs> about Miami <laughs> Connection? Yeah. Okay, Miami <laughs> Connection. Uh, Stuart, I watched that the first night I came to San Antonio, which was now what seven years ago. <laughs> you loved it, didn't you? I did love it. It's amazing. Yes. So Miami Connection is a quintessential <laughs> 1980s film of epic proportions directed by none other than Richard Park, who directed such classics as Kill the Ninja and L.A. Street Fighter and starring Y.K. Kim in one of his earliest English films. It's uh, best uh, understood by the synopsis on the back of his VHS tape box. It says the year is 1987. Motorcycle ninjas tighten the grip on Florida's narcotics trade, viciously annihilating anyone who dares move in on the turf. Multinational martial arts rock band Dragon Sound have had enough and embark on a roundhouse wreck wave of crime crushing justice anyways there's more to it but we'll put it in the show notes point. we'll put the whole thing in the show notes a- absolutely the, and the, the how the did this get made so... podcast talks about that on one of their episodes it's it's amazing <laughs> I, I don't know i'll have to listen to that one but this may the, the be box the first recommendation so... i've agreed with you on so I <laughs> i'm pretty sure there's a bazooka involved and if memory serves i think there's a notorious snake in the toilet scene which yes. is also fairly spectacular so uh, and an arm that gets chopped off it's just it, it's so 1980s okay cool. Justin, I wanted to, I wanted to do a quick shout out to an organization or uh, online um, 
Then uh, Grep Med, G-R-E-P-M-E-D. We've interacted with him on Twitter a few times, but it's uh, an incredible resource on social media for medical education where it basically curates some of the best visual abstracts or schemas or images from Echoes, EKGs, and has this wonderful way of voting system and saving and, and bookmarking to keep visual images that I think are really good for medical education. Um, it was called the Pinterest of medical education in some article uh, like by Wired or Time or Washington Post or a blog, I forget. Um, but you can make a Pinterest board for medical education. People should check it out. It's pretty great. It's a great idea. Justin, so let's, uh, let's, let's bring us into a case here. So our first case today is Mr. Harry Goldfarb. He's a 28-year-old male who is struggling with addiction. He regularly uses heroin multiple times a day. He typically injects, uh, occasionally with cocaine as well. He comes to the clinic because he feels like his life is just falling apart. He wants to get treatment. He wants to uh, you know, take control of his life. Um, what are some ways that we can approach him? And what are uh, some current treatments that are available that we might be able to use to, to help Harry? So I, I think the first thing to hear from Harry, he already uh, stated is that what his desire is to be person, patient-centered, person-centered, and to see what his goal is. Um, I will often ask people, have they ever had recovery before? Because the, if they've had recovery before, I try to spin that as something that's positive and ask them to reflect on what helped them achieve some uh, recovery time. Uh, we talk about what recovery is. Um, we talk about support systems. Where does he live? Who's around him? Uh, is it going to be difficult for him to achieve recovery if everybody else in his house is using um, to try to do whatever he can to maximize his chance of success is what I always, always say to patients. And I all, often congratulate them for coming to get help because I tell patients that, that I define recovery as making today better than yesterday. And you're, you're here, Harry's here today. Uh, he, he realizes that he wants to get better. And I also define uh, recovery as how people weigh risks and benefits that the reason he uses heroin cocaine is because he likes to get high, but getting into treatment doesn't mean that you didn't like getting high. It means that you want to, uh, get treatment and he, and he's going to tell me what the benefits of getting into treatment. So what does he think will happen if he's put on medication, for instance, uh, to help him with his struggle with addiction, what's his goal? What does he hope to get out of it? Um, what's he going to do with his time? How is he going to fill free time? Um, Sometimes I say specific things like, you know, it's going to be really great that you're going to wake up in the morning and not be sick and have to chase something. Uh, so sometimes I, I give out specific ideas, but I, I don't do that until I hear from the individual first. And then I ask what they know about treatment. Uh, so most patients uh, know about both methadone and buprenorphine. At the third medication that we can use for opioid use disorder is naltrexone. Uh, it, it's pretty difficult to use, especially because somebody has to be uh, opioid abstinent for a while. Um, so it, in most instances, it's not even an option. Um, and then we talk, I, I openly discuss both methadone and buprenorphine, um, letting patients know that it, they're both useful options and that if we decide on one uh, and it doesn't work, we can use the other one. And then we, we describe, I asked in 2019, most individuals uh, have tried one or the other or both. And it's not unusual for someone to say, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I was feeling withdrawal and a uh, friend gave me some buprenorphine and I tried it and it did help my withdrawal symptoms. So I find out where, what experience patients have had. I would want to know what, what kind of experience Harry's had before in trying to treat withdrawal and uh, did he have success? 
And maybe to follow up on that, what would, um, for someone who maybe is treatment naive, what would be the logistical advantages or disadvantages of methadone and buprenorphine? And is there any other um, eligibility of what patients can receive either? And even more so, what providers could actually prescribe the methadone or buprenorphine? Can you talk a little bit about the differences in um, delivery? Sure. So the, the history of treatment opioid use disorders really until the 1960s that as a physician, if someone came to me in opioid withdrawal, I couldn't do anything. Uh, uh, since the Harris Narcotic Act about 100 years ago, uh, it became illegal to prescribe an opioid to give treatment to someone with opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in the 1960s, we had methadone treatments that came uh, as an option, but that again was not in the physician's office. That had to be at specialized treatment center and centers and had specific rules that initially the DEA and now SAMHSA um, have treatment guidelines. Um, and they're, again, specially licensed treatment centers. They have rules. Uh, in general, the rules are that you have to have used opioids for at least a year, um, that you have to be eight, at least 18 years of age. The first 90 days, you have to show up daily, which is an obstacle for some individuals that you have to show up on a daily basis. And there's generally some requirements related to counseling and, and groups. Uh, buprenorphine, uh, which became a, a, which was first uh, presented it as a uh, option for treatment of opioid use disorder in a paper in 1978. Uh, first came close to fruition as a treatment in 2000 uh, when uh, a bill passed Congress allowing that a medication, which wasn't named in the bill, could be used for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the medical office setting. So it was the first time that someone in the office setting could actually treat. Uh, it required uh, a addendum to the DEA uh, license uh, uh, with an eight-hour training course initially that had to be in person, and then uh, could also uh, more recently be online as well. And uh, the rules that were slightly different, uh, uh, whether there was no rule for duration of how long a person had opioid use disorder, uh, that the age was now 16, uh, so it was a a lower age, and uh, that it was... uh, initiated by, it could be initiated in the office or by prescription. Uh, At the beginning, most of us had patients come to the office to get their first dose. But again, it was was by prescription initiated in the office. And there had to be uh, the availability of um, uh, uh, counseling, although not required, it could be individualized. And the original cap for the number of patients that could be treated with buprenorphine was 30. This went to 100. And uh, now it's 275. And the other the option that has changed is that uh, it's, uh, as of a uh, year and a half ago, that uh, other uh, healthcare providers, including nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and more recently, nurse anesthetists um, and nurse midwives can also be prescribers. Of and all that is the ETS waiver, I feel like, right? That's, you know, important to, we've talked about that on the show before, but the, the addendum to the DEA is the ETS waiver. Correct. So that's talking about using it because buprenorphine can be used for pain outside of treating opioid use disorder, correct? So these, the, the, the instances you were just talking about with, and the X waiver are specifically talking about it for patients who have opioid use disorder. That's correct. So parenteral uh, injectable buprenorphine has been avail- was available long before and uh, was certainly used uh, uh, as an effective medication for pain with decreased risk of respiratory depression. And it's interesting, as, as a sideline, 
when my cat got fixed, we right. got some sublingual buprenorphine <laughs> to put under his tongue after his surgery. Weird. <laughs> right. Because there's like a transdermal and buccal formulation. Can you talk yes. about some of the, I guess, can you talk about how would, how would buprenorphine be available to these? Like, what are the formulations that, that people might be prescribing if they're using it for uh, opioid use disorder? So I'll just take out that the, the patch form is, is only indicated for pain. Pain. So the formulations that are indicated for the treatment of opioid use disorder are the sublingual film or tablets. So there's brand names, the generic, there's a couple different brand names. A buccal film, which is uh, not really caught on very much, although it's available. And then uh, more recently, there's an injectable form of buprenorphine that's given monthly. Paul? Wow. Paul was telling me, Paul, can you talk about the experience? Like, do, do some of your patients have like a preference? That, yeah, thank you for asking. I was just going to ask that. My patients invariably prefer the films. And I don't know if this varies from state to state, but it, a lot of the times that requires a pre-authorization and failure of the tablets. But the patients often report with the tablets, to me at least, GI intolerance, or it just doesn't work as well as the thing I hear more often. Or, But mostly it's that they're throwing up sick to their stomach and they just don't feel it's as effective. So my patients... Nine times out of 10 prefer the films, and we end up doing a prior authorization for that. And I'm not sure if that's the usual experience or if that's sort of geographic. The sublingual films, right? Not the Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it depends on, on state, as you said. There is now generic film, brand film, you know, and brand film, generic tablet, brand tablet. The advantage of the film is it's like a breath strip. It, it dissolves pretty quickly. And before we had the film, we used to have to do a lot of coaching to tell people to tilt their head forward, to pull saliva behind their front teeth, you know, bottom front teeth. And that we used to say that some people were slow dissolvers and some people were faster dissolvers. <laughs> some people didn't like the taste. Um, so, so in general, uh, most patients do, do indeed prefer the film. I remember actually in Maryland, they had a quick uh, policy change where the Medicaid no longer covered the film and only the tablet because it was being smuggled into prisons. Um, and so some of our patients had to switch from the film to the tablets. And it's a fragile population sometimes on those medications that caused a lot of it caused a lot of issues. And so that, so that was a short lived issue. I actually, was interviewed by right. NPR. Yeah. You wrote about this, I remember. <laughs> Yeah, I wrote it, and, and I was on a story where NPR came to my office to interview me, and uh, Amazing. it, it uh, quickly got changed. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Mike, wow. it, Mike this is uh, something that, I, I mean, we're, we're talking about formulations, and we're talking about types. That, what is the cost to the patients? And a lot of the right. times, these are patients with either no insurance or on insurance, or, or, or sorry, on Medicaid, or their Medicaid application is, is kind of being processed. How how hard is it to get this covered? So uh, in general, in, uh, it's obviously easier in states that have had Medicaid expansion. So it, in many states, uh, Medicaid has been mandated to cover buprenorphine. In the state of Maryland, it, it does, um, although sometimes formulations. Uh, but there's many states have had uh, bills because, especially because the opioid overdose epidemic, mandating coverage for all Medicaid patients. Now, Medicare uh, D plans. There's some. It's probably the only place where I still occasionally we we actually have someone in our office who does the preauthorizations. Um, most commercial insurances now mandate also coverage for buprenorphine products without preauthorization. That's great. Without insurance is the is the harder part. Okay. And that's, that means it's an out of pocket or you have to find like a charity of some sort to cover it or. That's correct. And just as an aside, uh, uh, state, uh, 
ADAPT programs or aid drug assistance programs, which are state by state, all cover buprenorphine as well. So in, in Maryland, that often uh, is an issue for, we have some um, undocumented individuals with HIV that we take care of who uh, their health insurance is through uh, uh, ADAP and we can cover buprenorphine there as well. So we're, we're getting fairly granular here. I'd, I'd like to take a step back. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the, the hesitation with people sort of starting prescribing buprenorphine is just concerns because it's, you have to do this mandated training and then you have to be very cautious about how you initiate, which we'll get to, I guess, sort of broadly, can you sort of address if there's any safety considerations for buprenorphine? Sure. So the first thing I, I always ask uh, is ha- what's happened before when you've taken buprenorphine. Most individuals know that you have to be in withdrawal before you can take it. It's on the, you know, it's in the street. Uh, and, uh, Related, if someone says, I think I'm allergic to buprenorphine, it's usually because they precipitated withdrawal. So right. Buprenorphine mm-hmm. has, has a stronger affinity for the receptor, so it knocks any opioids off. So you have to be in, in moderate withdrawal in order to take your first dose. And okay. there are some people who feel with, the, with many of the opioids being fentanyl that you should wait even longer. Um, mm-hmm. But I, d- I don't have a specific rule for hours or uh, somebody told me, well, I tell my patients to wait two days. I mean, that's... Yeah, you're going to fail if you wait for two days. Wow. What is that? Um, so it's really the degree of withdrawal. If, if they're uncomfortable and they know what that is and they're really craving, they're sweaty, they, they know better than we do what significant withdrawal is. And they, and they put a dose under their tongue. They're going to feel better within minutes. Do are there know? other safety issues at all? So, so there are no other safety issues. Uh, in, in fact, uh, um, there's no significant drug interactions, which uh, is an issue for methadone, where we do worry about interactions uh, mm-hmm. with other medications. Uh, I've occasionally had patients actually referred uh, because of having Q2 prolongation on methadone and assistance in switching people from methadone to buprenorphine. That's a common in-hospital consult uh, a, a re- request for assistance. Um, it's really safe because there's no interaction with other medications. Uh, we used to, when we first started Doing it, people used to say you have to monitor a liver function test. There's no evidence of liver toxicity. And someone who has perhaps decompensated cirrhosis, like any other medication, you would be cautious. But uh, in general, it's very easy to use. And, and uh, I certainly think it's easier to get someone started on buprenorphine than to get someone started on insulin. What, what's the specific concern with the decompensated cirrhosis? That, I, I think that perhaps the metabolism may be slightly diminished in people who have uncompensated cirrhosis. It's not a contradiction, but I would probably start at a lower dose. Gotcha. Mike, I, so, I just okay. wanted to, because we've had a couple patients admitted to the hospital with opioid use disorder. There was a, a hepatitis A outbreak near Cashlack. So patients might've had high liver enzymes. They weren't necessarily in failure, but uh, we, you know, we didn't know because if you look it up, it's still kind of, it's still in there in like the adverse reactions or the contraindications. And you can find some case reports of like patients that were on buprenorphine, naloxone, and then they had liver failure, but they had multiple other things that could have potentially caused the liver failure as well. So it wasn't necessarily proven to be causal. So you're saying that patient with like liver, like Unless they're in fulminant liver failure, you're not really worried about buprenorphine throwing them into it. That's correct. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, because there there have been a couple cases in the past year or so since uh, Cashlack has gotten this medicine (laughs) where the patient was not given 
they weren't offered butte because like our pharmacist didn't know and what we could, you know from what we could look up with no one having much local <laughs> expertise i don't know paul is that happening at your hospital too i guess i've not seen that but luckily we have a, a, a you have a psychologist yeah who's sort of spearheading our, our substance use disorder initiative so that that's helpful um yeah but doctor up to date i can imagine if you're rate limited <laughs> by that it would be a problem yeah no, I mean, it's PubMed and looking around and stuff. I couldn't find anything to, yeah, okay. It's good to know. That's why we're doing this. And what 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 dosage? You, you mentioned that you'd have to reduce the dosage and maybe severe liver failure, but what dosage would you start these patients on who aren't in severe liver failure? So in general, I tell people to take the first dose being four milligrams. The most common is I tell patients to take four milligrams, and if they're doing well, depending on the time of the day, to take another four milligrams later in the day. And then on the second day in the morning when they wake up to take eight milligrams. And most, I'd say 90% of patients, I have 16 milligrams a day. Uh, I, I don't go beyond 16 milligrams until we know at least, probably even a week out that somebody says that they're still kind of struggling and craving. Um, I never go above 24 milligrams. And then the other way, I have a few patients who I, I actually saw a young woman today who has done well long-term on four milligrams. And very granular specific question that we can certainly cut out, but do you find insurance companies are paying for the four milligram tablets? Because that's not been my experience, at least in, in Cashlock's neighborhood. I think it's individual. I think you have to okay. see. Sometimes it's the other difficulty, sometimes pharmacies. Uh, I have one person who, this is a different issue, who's tried to, who uh, we're coming off very slowly and it comes in a two milligram tablet. And, and that person has to order as well because that's not a common dose. We've often initiated people on a, uh to say in the eight milligram film, but cutting it in half. Is that something that you guys do? That seems like an easy way to. I do too. But the important thing is, is generally I tell people to, to cut it in half while it's still in the foil. It's just the handling. If you have uh, your hands, oh, like, yeah. that's, that's a fair or, point. Or it has some oil. It, it can make Ooh. some of the film dissolve in your hand. Ooh, that's so a like girl. Cut it in half and then peel the foil open. and use oh, the half. That's why this is a masterclass. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> So what we've talked about so far, we talked about the formulation of buprenorphine. We talked about the, uh, the kind of a little bit about the initiation, how to counsel patients, and then that essentially buprenorphine is safe even if the patient has elevated liver enzymes or um, even if they have chronic liver failure, it should be, should be okay. You just might start with a lower, a lower dose and then cut the eight milligram strip in half uh, and don't, uh, while it's still in the foil. That's fantastic. Justin, what what else is on the agenda here? We got. We, I know we have a lot more questions left. Yeah. Well, so one quick uh, thing I think it's important to to ask about is uh, when you're trying to get buprenorphine in these community centers, which you've been an advocate for, or um, when people have concerns about uh, patients that are using buprenorphine, um, is this something that can be frequently abused? If it's on the street, is this something that you know people are going to be asking for buprenorphine if we start serving them at our clinic, just so that they can. Uh, uh, have it as, as a as a drug of abuse, like another um, opiate or narcotic. So obviously, I think we should protect this, and we don't want anybody to say uh, uh, that this is something that's just abused. So I don't think diversion is something that's good. I don't encourage it, but in fact, diversion is generally because we need better treatment access. So. If you ask people who have bought buprenorphine in the street why they bought it, it's because uh, I was in withdrawal and I wanted to feel better. If someone wants to get high, they're going to buy some heroin slash fentanyl on the street, which is also cheaper on the street than buprenorphine. Wow. What? Well, and there's a great article, right? I think there's, there's, um, they did evidence where they, they interviewed people and it's something like 
less than 10%, I think it's even smaller, that used buprenorphine on the street, used it for any type of attempt at euphoria. Yeah, uh, in the streets of Baltimore, it's $6 now to buy a, a p- pill of heroin slash fentanyl. Two years ago, you couldn't get anything really for less than $10. And the buprenorphine on the street is about $10. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Well, if we were going to, do you want to go move on to like how we would specifically initiate this? Uh, we talked yeah. a little bit about it, but let's get a little bit more detail. Some details. Sure. So in general, in 2019, I only do home initiation. There is literature support. In, in one of those where you hate to say this double negative, that, that home initiation is not inferior was the conclusion <laughs> of the paper to, 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 to uh, someone initiating the office. Uh, there's problems with initiating the office. You certainly can't store it in the office because the DEA would, has rules for storage of scheduled drugs. So early on, people would say, bring back your medication. We'll give you a dose in the office. There's really no reason to do that. If you see somebody withdrawal, why would you wait a day? Uh, if they're suffering and uh, want to get initiate treatment that day. So I give them a prescription. It, it's individual preference um, for how long the prescription should be. In general, you have to make a, a, a judgment as to when you're going to see the patient back. Uh, is it someone that's new to you? Is it an established patient who is now ready for treatment who you uh, think uh, is going to succeed? I would never give more than a week, meaning uh, 14 doses of uh, buprenorphine as an, uh, an initial prescription. Um, and I think you have to make a decision. Re- regardless of how much you give, I-, I think it deserves a phone call. In my office setting, we have uh, peer recovery coaches who can help with the phone calls. Um, so we often tag team, like the peer recovery coach will call the next morning or even that evening if I see the patient in the morning, send me a message through the electronic health record. Um, and we often tag team checking in with patients. It's a lot of coaching and encouragement. It's really congratulating people who, who do well um, and asking I, in a trite way. I, th- I tell people, you know, they say, I'm doing well. I say through the phone, well, pat yourself on the back. Um, uh, so it's a lot of en- encouragement. Uh, I would always see patients uh, with in person uh, at the longest it would be one week, uh, just to judge. And, and I think it gives personal satisfaction to see patients back in a week because often you'll see they look so dramatically different. Um, uh, uh, they're full of hope, they dress differently, their conversation is different. Um, and, and it's that reinforcement which uh, c- can encourage uh, new prescribers to keep on going. Um, so, and then general, uh, again, I ask patients when they show up, I even ask patients on the first visit, you know, we use urine drug monitoring. <clears throat> and I tell patients I use that as a tool that this, you know, eventually we're going to look at your record and see, you know, four straight urines that, that only have buprenorphine in it. And you're going to be really proud of yourself. Um, and I, this is individual style, but if someone tells me, you know, I had a slip yesterday, I, I'm still using, I say, well, well, let's not do a urine today. Let's cut, have you come back in a few days when we know, because you know, my pretest probability is a hundred percent. Why would I do the test? Um, <laughs> So, so uh, I listen to what the patient says, and uh, but then again, I, I, if something is there that shouldn't be there, I don't, I don't say I got you or I caught right. you. I, I say, you know, looks like you're struggling. To fill me in what happened and what, what we can do to help things. You know, it's very patient-centered. I'm here to help you succeed, so you have to guide me. Right. This this is a, a disease where you know they are gonna have like almost everyone's going to stumble. At least that's my experience with addiction. It seems like, yes. it seems like everyone's going to stumble. So 
punishing them for stumbling is not not what you're is not a, a step in the right direction. Do you, when you're looking, you're talking about they're coming back in and they should always have buprenorphine in their system if they're sticking with the treatment. That's what you're looking for. And then you're also just looking for are are they using any other substances? That's correct. But we always remind, I think, all prescribers need to know that this is a treatment for opioid use disorder. Uh, the, the patient you presented was used cocaine as well. Now, it's possible that along the way, as he separates people in places and stops using um, heroin, that he'll stop using cocaine too. And, and that becomes a conversation. Um, I, I take care of many patients who indeed stop cocaine. I can think of a handful of patients I've treated with buprenorphine for a few years who still intermittently, a couple times a week, once a week, twice a month, still use cocaine. And that doesn't mean they've failed their, their treatment with buprenorphine. Right. You're, you're, you've still reduced harm by having them on that medication. So if I can ask about induction. So you mentioned it's sort of relatively straightforward to start for someone who's actively in withdrawal. They're in the office, they're shaking, they feel awful. What, how, how do you go about out-of-office induction if for someone who has sort of recently used and so is not an active withdrawal at the time? What kind of counseling you do and how do you sort of talk them through the initial process? So I'm first going to say that I, I prefer the term initiation because I think that by, there's no other medicine that we use that we yeah. induct. I, I guess you can make your <laughs> insulin induction. You can use your uh, <laughs> stovetop for induction. Sure. Um, uh, because I think it scares off people because this is something different. Like there's no other medication that we use a strange term like induction. Um, so, so, so people come to the office that have already used I, it, it's conversation. Sometimes I may, if, if they've used it before, I, I'll trust them and say, you know, you gotta be in withdrawal. Um, mm. I, I, I provide buprenorphine treatment in, in unusual settings. I'm in a church Monday morning, uh, where we created a program. So, you know, someone comes in and says, I used a few hours ago. Um, but I'm only there on Monday. I don't have the option of saying, you know, come back in two days or tomorrow. Uh, I don't want to see, find out they overdosed bef- between, you know, today as Monday and next Monday. So, so I, we coach, we talk to them about it. I have a nurse who can also ch- uh, check in on them. Um, uh, but, but we coach and say, you know, you gotta be in withdrawal. Don't take this dose until you're in some withdrawal. And, uh, it's a, I'd say 98% of the time it works. A few times it doesn't because someone misjudges and does take it too early. And then we talk about it then as well. Let's say we initiate uh, our patient and unfortunately calls the next day and he just says he's feeling awful. He woke up and he's having sort of his typical withdrawal symptoms. He's anxious. His belly hurts. He's having a runny nose. He just feels awful. Yeah. So generally what I do is I I encourage patients to keep keep on going. Occasionally, uh, if there's significant nausea, I may actually, uh, and they're worried that over the course of the day, they're going to have persistent nausea. Um, I'll call in some uh, Dancitron or something like that for, for nausea um, because that makes it more difficult. Certainly other supportive medications uh, like, like cyclamine if they have a lot of cramping. But in general, I, I try to give encouragement. I do my best. And I, I usually go slowly. If they're in withdrawal, generally, they're going to feel better. Um, and I, I'll probably tell them to do only a two milligram dose um, and do frequent two milligram dose, like every every couple hours to do, again, if you have eight milligram strips, it means a quarter of a strip, but doing carefully, but doing, uh, and it means phone calls, more, more uh, encouragement. Most individuals have had bad withdrawal. It's certainly not something they want to have. And, and uh, it can be frustrating. And, and you do have to give a lot of encouragement that this is going to get better and we're going to succeed in getting you on this medication. Um, and yeah, within the next two days, you're going to be really glad that you stuck with it. 
the, the two milligram is is that just to more gently get them onto the to the medication like it because it if you give them the two milligrams it might be knocking off some of the opioid full agonist that's still in their system so you're just giving it you're knocking off less at a time than if you were to give like a four or an eight milligram so, so that's correct so there are even some models where people have looked at people who are on high levels of uh opioid agonists using minuscule doses which we can't even do you know a pharmacy prepared a half milligram at a time dose of of buprenorphine to try to get people uh, uh, onto buprenorphine mm-hmm. who are on high doses of, of agonists quickly. I certainly wouldn't do that in, in the outpatient setting. In, in talking about the microdosing um, that you mentioned, uh, Mike, the butrans patch, which as you mentioned is mostly for pain or only uh, approved for pain, there's some theory behind it perhaps that that might be something that could be used to treat or transition people that are really high risk for precipitated withdrawal. Is that something people are talking about or is that, is that a thing? So, so there was a paper, I believe out of Colorado where people looked at that. So it, it, when you think about it, what it means is that when you put a patch on this, it goes into your system really slowly. So you're very slowly getting a, a level. Officially it's an off label use. Um, but in the hospital setting, uh, if, if there's an, a need to, to make that transition, it certainly could make sense. Cool. That'll have to be like the master class 2.0 for <laughs> to go through that. Matt, did you want to ask about the induction for chronic pain? Well, yeah, the, I mean, that kind of goes along those same, those same lines. We, we were talking about, I know that some of the other groups at Hopkins where there is a specific pain population on very high doses of prescription opioid pills, they are also transitioning some of those folks to buprenorphine because some of those, anybody that's on long-term chronic opioids can develop an opioid use disorder. Um, For patients in our clinics, we see a lot of primary care patients that just end up on high-dose opioids, and maybe we have some in our panels, we don't know what to do with them. Transitioning them onto buprenorphine, do you have any words of wisdom for how to do that? So I have tried. I've had some success. There has to be some patient buy-in. Um, in general, I, I, I try to get people who are on, uh, I sometimes inherit patients who have been uh, set aside by other providers on incredibly high doses of uh, opioids that I diligently do my best to try to get them down. We work out at this complaining, then they're saying, see, you did okay, encouragement. Um, but I have successfully treated uh, some patients with uh, chronic pain to buprenorphine and ha- have them report that they're pain is the best it's been. Um, I've had uh, had a lady who had a chronic pain issue and then actually had to have surgery and uh, was given uh, dilaudid after surgery. And she reported it gave no pain relief. Within 12 hours of her surgery, she said, put me back on buprenorphine and pain relief. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So one of our our second cases, uh, Harry's friend, Tyrone Love, uh, is also someone who is stably on um, buprenorphine and has to go for a elective knee replacement. And so he's doing really well. He's been on buprenorphine for a couple of years now, but is worried about pain management during this uh, elective procedure. Is his being on buprenorphine a, a contraindication for an elective procedure, or how can we uh, help him handle the recovery period? So this is an area where, unfortunately, a lot of people will say, here's what I do, which I generally hate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So so, uh, at the American Society of Addiction Medicine meeting, there's a pre-course on on pain and addiction. And uh, this past year, there was uh, uh, 
maybe it's because I agreed with them. There's finally a, 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 a good uh, a discussion of perioperative uh, care of people on buprenorphine because there's a huge mix of opinion. It's a, so I actually had a recent argument with an anesthesiologist who, sa who said, well, I want to see patients on buprenorphine three days before surgery and start them on full opioid agonists. Um, have them on agonists for three days, then have their surgery, and then a few days after surgery, stringes them back. And mm. you can imagine if you're a patient who's in recovery, you say, oh my God, I'm not, God. you're putting me on an agonist. Then there's also the issue of I'm going to fill a prescription for an agonist, and then my insurance is going to say, you know, what's going on here? Oh you know, maybe they shouldn't be on buprenorphine. Um, so, so I think that is not a good tact, even though you'll hear people say it. Um, in general, uh, I do. Uh, which was mentioned at the, the conference as well. And, and there are some papers. There's been no, it's pretty tough to do a, a randomized controlled trial, the best way to do this. But in general, in working with anesthesia, I always have a discussion with the surgeon. Um, and there's some surgeons that I know real well. For some reason, I have a lot of patients on buprenorphine who've had carpal tunnel surgery. Um, <laughs> so so and it's the same surgeon. And uh, we do the same thing with everybody. We you gave an example of a replacement. I think it's the same thing. I tell patients to take buprenorphine the night before surgery, not to take it the morning of the surgery. Um, know that they're going to take get a, a full agonist perioperatively. And then I have had patients who said even uh, 24 hours after surgery that, that I, if I can, I try to visit them too. But I speak to the surgeon and anesthesia. And it, it's not uncommon for patients to say, even 24 hours after surgery, I want to have uh, be back on buprenorphine. I had one lady who was seven years into recovery, had a hysterectomy and refused, told anesthesia, you're not to give me any opioids postoperatively. And she got no opioids postoperatively. Did she um, didn't stay she, on her bup during the... She stayed on her bup. That's okay. correct. Okay. So, so, so whatever happened postoperatively, but her initial dose after medication after you know, waking up she only got buprenorphine mm -hmm. would you ever go up on the buprenorphine dose or kind of decrease the interval of dosing of the buprenorphine so, so that's a great point so the analgesia calf-life is shorter so when generally when we give it for pain i, I would change it to either either every six hours or every eight hours so that's correct and I, I usually use a similar dose i may go up a little bit if someone is on 16 milligrams i might go up to eight milligrams three times a day or six milligrams four times a day in that post-operative period or even for a few days after they go home. And when patients have bup in their system, if they have acute pain, you can use, you would, would you, if you decide you're going to use a full agonist, would you just give it on top of the buprenorphine or would you, you would stop the bup, you would, you would stop the buprenorphine while you're giving them full agonist? Which, which one do you think is better? So in general, that is what I do. There are some individuals who have successfully said that we just give the uh, agonist, full agonist temporarily. It's likely it has a diminished effect. Uh, so I think you have to make a choice on what type of pain it is. My first option would be to try to split the dose of, of just using buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're using a full agonist, I, uh, in general, I would say, and you really want analgesic that you get and you want the full agonist present to, to hold the buprenorphine. Okay. Uh, but, there are, but there are some people who don't. But I, th I think if you want to truly get pain relief, to hold it temporarily is right. Okay. Can, can we go back just to the, um, the, the dosing? I, I, this is a question that I had when, when you're starting somebody, when we were talking about the initiation, you said the most you would usually write for is like a full week. What strips do, what milligram strips do you write for? And because you don't know, 
that first 24 hours, you don't really know like how much they're going to need each day. If they're going to be a four milligram once a day person or an eight milligram twice a day person, how do you figure that out when you're writing that first script? So in general, the first script, I do give the dose is eight milligrams twice a day. And I think probably 90% of people wind up okay on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really a patient and it's easier to come down. A patient says, you know, I think it made me a little bit too drowsy. Um, and then we cut back. Um, but I wouldn't go up more than the 16 milligrams until people are, uh, have really gotten a you know, for full form kinetic effect, which probably takes four to five days. Got it. So, so you could write them the eight milligram strips and they can cut them in half or in quarters, as you told us, and they can, they can then decide, um, like which dose, which dose is working, but they won't go above the eight twice a day. Correct. I want to ask about sort of two perceived barriers. Um, one is, I, I think a lot of folks are a little bit hesitant to initiate prescribing because of the, the perceived requirement for behavioral support services as part of the outpatient practice or connected with. So I wonder if you could sort of speak to that and how big a barrier that actually is. So, so that's a really important point because I think that does uh, prevent some people from prescribing. That uh, as uh, prescribers, we hope that all prescribers, whether they're nurse practitioners, physician assistants, or physicians, or have some skill in motivational interviewing and giving encouragement. Um, and that's what's really necessary. And if you look at the literature, there is no paper that, in, that looked at in randomized trials where we people were assigned to usual treatment, which includes a provider who cares and counsels, <laughs> and, and making that, you know, a subset of uh, half the patients randomized having to go over there for counseling. But the patients required to go over there for counseling had no better outcomes. Having said that, I think that we do, uh, I individualize. And I, I kind of say you know, to patients, what do you need for support? And in, uh, if you can, and I, I don't think this is requirements, for instance, my office setting, I have peer recovery coaches available to help give encouragement and to help with the phone calls and checking up on people. But, but the, the, there's no evidence that requiring uh, counseling is a benefit. The other issue, I just, which I think is important that individuals will hear, is that uh, so much of addiction has been so 12-step based, and that if someone goes to a 12-step meeting, they're going to hear, well, you're on medication, you're not in recovery. And I warn patients about that message. Yeah, you. In, to follow up to that, I mean, the, you, you hear this, like some patients have said to me, aren't I just trading one addiction for another? And would I ever be able to taper off this medication? How do you, how do you answer those questions? And um, yeah, how do you answer those questions? So that's an important question. So very frequently patients will, how long will I be on this? And I say, I don't know. Um, In general, I'd say it's going to be many months and that we make a judgment. Right now, our goal is to make improvements in your life and let's see what happens. The pull of families can be very strong as well. This just happened to me a week ago where a young lady who was a, you know, had HIV, actually perinatal HIV, had stopped taking her HIV medication. She was 21 years old, using heroin, uh, advanced HIV, which she shouldn't see. And uh, over the last four months, she was on buprenorphine. I was taking her HIV medication. And her mother burst in the room and said, you need to stop prescribing her buprenorphine. Uh, essentially the same thing that you just said. You're just, su- she's just substituting one thing for another. And I don't want her on it. Um, so th- in a way it was good because it was overt and I knew this message had been given to her, but we, I think we have to discuss with patients that, and realize the patients may hear that at home. 
it, it sounds like uh, there's not really a great way to combat that other than just to tell them that we don't see it that way. We think that their their chances of surviving this disease with is better with the medicine than without it, and that this is a chronic condition that needs to be treated. It's, I guess, and then as far as coming off the medicine, you you've been doing this for a long time. What percentage of your patients, and this is just like off the cuff, what do you think? Like what percentage actually come off this medicine down years down the line or months down the line? I'd say of the, uh, I've been doing it since the, the onset. I, I'd say probably 10% come off. Okay. And, there's, and I, I don't know that it's very different than, for instance, my patients with diabetes, what percent of my patients right, that right. I start on metformin and insulin and other stuff eventually wind up not on medications, probably less than 10%, but yeah. I'd say about 10%. I think that's a realistic number. And in 2019, I, I, I openly talked to the fact that this is overdose prevention as well. Yeah. I mean, all my patients have seen someone die of, of an overdose. But I say, you know, if you take this medication, uh, you know, it's going to prevent you know, from craving. And it, uh, it probably decreases your risk of overdose if you slip too, because you have it on the receptor already. Um, so treat, you know, opioid use disorder treatment with medication is overdose prevention. Can, can, can I just ask, this is, this is not straight up medical, but somewhat historical. I just want to ask you a question about opioid usage in the West in general, because in the 1800s, morphine was widely available over the counter. So was cocaine and other yep. Substances as well until the Harrison Narcotics yes. Act of 1914, which subsequently a few things happened after that that probably had some impact on uh, illicit drug use. One of which is World War One, and then the Spanish flu uh, epidemic. My question to you is: Have we ever, as a nation, really recovered, or is this just a continuum of the same? You know, looking at the 1960s, 1970s, and then even in the 40s, with even with World War II, uh, soldiers overseas u- utilizing no- morphine while they're overseas to for uh, um, um, illicitly. Uh, is is this just a continuum? Have we ever been out of the opioid usage crisis? So I don't think we ever have. I mean, the, the the idea that you can get euphoria and use it as a recreational drug is hundreds of years old. Um, so the formulations have changed. And unfortunately, it looks like we've changed from a agricultural opioid use disorder to a manu- you know, a industrial manufacturing yeah. use disorder. And there's also been some shifts in socioeconomics. So uh, of who used so, so you know heroin. Uh, so William Osler um, protect, protected William Halstead, who was the famous surgeon at Hopkins, one of the founding surgeons, who had terrible morphine addiction. Um, right. And so. A uh, hundred years ago, morphine, heroin was a drug of the elite, and cocaine was the drug of the of the more uh, socioeconomic lower uh, strata. And That's... then it and then it switched. Um, so some of those things have ha- have changed. But you're correct; it's been a continuum. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because like Vin Mariani with cocaine and wine, it, you know, had a lot of popular or a, a lot of well-known users like Ulysses S. Grant, and I think even uh, other presidents too. But I can't. I mean, it, the the illicit, what we consider illicit today, has been used widely for years. It's, I, I I don't know. Maybe the war on drugs has been drug out too long. <laughs> that was going to be my pun, but you was know. that I yeah. was that question that that All was that question All just to set up a pun? <laughs> just a single word, Shaggy Dog. Oh, God, no, no, it wasn't. It, it was a legitimate question. I'm so angry right now. 
Uh, Justin, please ask your question. Let, let's let's get uh, ask your question and let's let's wrap. I was going to say, let's do. Yeah, I think I think we talked about a lot. And so, kind of talking about a, a quick summary for patients with opiate use disorder, buprenorphine is a very effective medication. It's a very safe medication. It is not frequently abused, and diversion is uh, maybe blown out of proportion a little bit too much as a concern. Can be prescribed in the office, in a church, in a van with home initiation. <laughs> Eight milligrams BID, but the first milligrams first. Anyone can get their ETS waiver for free with PCSS uh, online. Clinics do not need intense counseling resources to be offering buprenorphine. And we can treat acute pain on top of buprenorphine, as we discussed. Um, And then maybe uh, using that as a summary, Mike, can you kind of give us some take-home points for our listeners? So I think the take-home point is is mostly the reason I've done this for so long is is that I, I get incredible satisfaction that that it's a way to truly team up with patients. Um, I tell patients I'm joining your fan club. We create ho- hope for them, and and then the messages I always talk about patients is I tell them about steps um, that that my steps, which is different than twelve steps, is that we're going to take away shame, we're going to remove stigma, we're going to build your self-esteem. And for the, for as long as we're working up together, we're going to work on coping skills. We anticipate obstacles. If they, you know, what are your triggers for, for relapse? We're going to work at it. Uh, this is a work in progress. Um, and for patients to reflect. Um, and uh, I, if you do this long enough, you can have numerous patients say to you, you saved my life. And the last question, anything that you'd like to plug, any websites or other resources you want to sh- share with our listeners? So this is a, a self-plug, if that's okay. So, sure. so I'm an author of the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine Handbook of Addiction Medicine. Uh, uh, we're working on our second edition. It's, it's a very practical guide, not a lot of basic science. It's really an approach to how do I, you know, what, what are the signs of toxicity? How do I treat withdrawal? How do I approach patients? And we're coming out with our second edition next July. Excellent. I, I definitely need that. <laughs> Okay. And, uh, and we were talking about this beforehand, right? People can, uh, sit for the addiction medicine boards. They can buy your book yeah. and sit for the addiction medicine boards before 2021 and they don't have to do a fellowship, <laughs> but maybe do a fellowship if you, uh, if you have the time and, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're kind of, kind of close now. You have to put a lot of hours in between now and 2020. So yeah. it's going to be a full time job if you're going to 2021 Paul. So they got, yeah. they got some time. <laughs> All right. <Never> the <laughs> Uh, Mike, this was great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mm, yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's correct, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice change knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, Justin Lieber and Steffi Moeller. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. I also want to thank myself for writing the music. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>